You are listening to Unraveling Rachel. This is a podcast all about this journey that we call life and how we can live it more authentically so that it sucks less and feels better. Hi there, friends. So what you're about to hear is an episode that I recorded way back when I started recording episodes of this podcast, um, but before I had the guts to get it out there. And um, so I released those first few episodes in December, and then I've been keeping some hanging around um, and trusting that there would be a time when I felt uh, it was relevant to um, release them. And so I'm feeling now's the time for this one that you're about to hear because um, I read the first couple of chapters from this book, When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. And I picked up this book again the other night in a very similar fashion to how I did the first time I picked it up and the first time I was inspired to read from it. And um, yeah, so here it is. Now's the time um, that I feel called to share it with you. And um, when I picked up the book the other night, I read parts of it and then I remembered that I had this and I went back and I listened to it and I really liked it. I really, really liked it. And I hope that you will too. So um, with that, on to the episode. Hey there, friends. So I couldn't sleep last night and I just wanted something to read that, I don't know, I just wanted something to read that would maybe help me quiet my mind. Not that there was a lot going on as far as like worry or fear. I just, I couldn't stop thinking and I had been reading uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning and just wasn't what I wanted. So I went to my bookshelf and I had a look and a book that popped out at me is one that I started reading a year ago and never got through. Um, and it is Pemish, I'm going to probably butcher her name, Pemish Chodron's uh, When Things Fall Apart, Hard Advice for Difficult Times. And I'm going through a difficult time right now. And I think oftentimes we all are in some way or another, Sometimes it feels really big. Sometimes it's minor. And the advice in this book is really, um, it's really accessible, I think. And the, the way that she lays it out and the stories that she tells make it feel doable in our everyday lives, I think. Um, and I had gotten about halfway through the book. And instead of uh, picking up where I left off, I decided that it would be w- worth um starting over from the beginning. And I'm really glad that I did because in one of the first uh, chapters, the very first chapter actually beyond like the preface and whatnot, it is called intimacy with fear. And I was like, okay, like this sounds good. Um, And I started underlining things in here that I thought would be like good key points to maybe talk about in an episode. And I just kept underlining (laughs) So I decided, why don't I just read it to you? So that is what I'm going to do. And um, 
pardon any mispronunciations of Buddhist things. And I also want to say that I don't consider myself a Buddhist. I don't consider myself to uh, ascribe to any one religion or spirituality, but I do consider myself to be spiritual, which is something that uh, even just a few years ago, I wouldn't have thought of myself as. Um, but I'm realizing that developing a spirituality is really a key to finding some peace and freedom in our lives uh, as much as we can uh, through everything that's going on. And, and that's what she talks about a bit in this short chapter. So um, if you are of some other religious faith or you don't consider yourself spiritual, I would just ask you to listen with an open mind and be able to take the things from it that make sense or work for you or give you some sort of value rather than rejecting it just because, oh, it's labeled Buddhism. Um, and I will say, I, I do often find that a lot of Buddhist thought resonates with me. I was actually a Chinese studies major in college, which took me by surprise because I had started out as pre-med and thought that I would go down that path, but I came to a point where I just needed to get a degree and I chose something that was of interest to me. And um, Chinese culture and history is very, very fascinating, and so is their philosophy and spirituality. Um, and I especially appreciate both Buddhism and Taoism for at least in how I've encountered it, I find it to be practical and accessible and not something that um, requires some sort of full-on commitment to knowing. It's actually more about not knowing. So um, with that, I encourage you to listen with an open mind, and here we go. Intimacy with Fear from Pema Chodron's When Things Fall Apart, Hard Advice for Difficult Times. Starts with a quote, fear is a natural reaction to moving closer to the truth. Embarking on the spiritual journey is like getting into a very small boat and setting out on the ocean to search for unknown lands. With wholehearted practice comes inspiration, but sooner or later we will also encounter fear. For all we know, when we get to the horizon, we are going to drop off the edge of the world. Like all explorers, we are drawn to discover what's waiting out there without knowing yet if we have the courage to face it. If we become interested in Buddhism and decide to find out what it has to offer, we'll soon discover that there are different slants on how we can proceed. With insight meditation, we begin practicing mindfulness, being fully present with all our activities and thoughts. With Zen practice, we hear teachings on emptiness and are challenged to connect with the open, unbounded clarity of the mind. The Vajrayana teachings introduce us to the notion of working with the energy of all situations, seeing whatever arises as inseparable from the awakened state. Any of these approaches might, might hook us and fuel our enthusiasm to explore further, but if we want to go beneath the surface and practice without hesitation, it is inevitable that at some point we will experience fear. Fear is a universal experience. Even the smallest insects feel it. We wade in the tidal pools and put our finger near the soft, open bodies of sea anemones, and they close up. Everything spontaneously does that. It's not a terrible thing that we feel fear when faced with the unknown. 
It is part of being alive, something we all share. We react against the possibility of loneliness, of death, of not having anything to hold on to. Fear is a natural reaction to moving closer to the truth. If we commit ourselves to staying right where we are, when our experience, then our experience becomes very vivid. Things become very clear when there is nowhere to escape. During a long retreat, I had what seemed to me the earth-shaking revelation that we cannot be in the present moment and run our storylines at the same time. It sounds pretty obvious, I know, but when you discover something like this for yourself, it changes you. Impermanence becomes vivid in the present moment. So do compassion and wonder and courage, and so does fear. In fact, anyone who stands on the edge of the unknown, fully in the present without reference point, experiences groundlessness. That's when our understanding goes deeper, when we find that the present moment is a pretty vulnerable place and that this can be completely unnerving and completely tender all at the same time. When we begin our exploration, we have all kinds of ideals and expectations. We're looking for answers that will satisfy a hunger we felt for a very long time. But the last thing we want is a further introduction to the boogeyman. Of course, people do try to warn us. I remember when I first received meditation instruction, the woman told me the technique and guidelines on how to practice and then said, but please don't go away from here thinking that meditation is a vacation from irritation. Somehow, all the warnings in the world don't quite convince us. In fact, they draw us closer. What we're talking about is getting to know fear, becoming familiar with fear, looking it right in the eye, not as a way to solve problems, but as a complete undoing of old ways of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and thinking. The truth is that when we really begin to do this, we're going to be continually humbled. There's not going to be much room for the arrogance that holding on to ideals can bring. The arrogance that inevitably does arise is going to be continually shot down by our own courage to step forward a little further. The kinds of discoveries that are made through practice have nothing to do with believing in anything. They have much more to do with having the courage to die, the courage to die continually. Instructions on mindfulness or emptiness or working with energy all point to the same thing. Being right on the spot nails us. It nails us right to the point of time and space that we are in. When we stop there and don't act out, don't repress, don't blame it on anyone else, and also don't blame it on ourselves, then we meet with an open-ended question that has no conceptual answer. We also encounter our heart. As one student so eloquently put it, Buddha nature, cleverly disguised as fear, kicks our ass into being receptive. I once attended a lecture about a man's spiritual experiences in India in the 1960s. He said he was determined to get rid of his negative emotions. He struggled against anger and lust. He struggled against laziness and pride, but mostly he wanted to get rid of his fear. His meditation teacher kept telling him to stop struggling, but he took that as just another way of explaining how to overcome his obstacles. Finally, the teacher set him off to meditate in a tiny hut in the foothills. He shut the door and settled down to practice, and when it got dark, he lit three small candles. Around midnight, he heard a noise in the corner of the room, and in the darkness, he saw a very large snake. It looked to him like a king cobra. It was right in front of him, swaying. All night, he stayed, totally alert, keeping his eyes on the snake. He was so afraid that he couldn't move. There was just the snake and himself in fear. 
Just before dawn, the last candle went out, and he began to cry. He cried not in despair, but from tenderness. He felt the longing of all the animals and people in the world. He knew their alienation and their struggle. All his meditation had been nothing but further separation and struggle. He accepted, really accepted wholeheartedly, that he was angry and jealous, that he resisted and struggled, and that he was afraid. He accepted that he was also precious beyond measure, wise and foolish, rich and poor, and totally unfathomable. He felt so much gratitude that in the total darkness, he stood up, walked toward the snake, and bowed. Then he fell sound asleep on the floor. When he awoke, the snake was gone. He never knew if it was his imagination or if it had really been there, and it doesn't seem to matter. As he put it at the end of the lecture, that much intimacy with fear caused his dramas to collapse, and the world around him finally got through. No one ever tells us to stop running away from fear. We are very rarely told to move closer, to just be there, to become familiar with fear. I once asked the Zen master, Kobanchino Roshi, how he related with fear, and he said, I agree, I agree. But the advice we usually get is to sweeten it up, smooth it over, take a pill, or distract ourselves, but by all means, make it go away. We don't need that kind of encouragement because dissociating from fear is what we do naturally. We habitually spin off and freak out when there's even the merest hint of fear. We feel it coming and we check out. It's good to know we do that, not as a way to beat ourselves up, but as a way to develop unconditional compassion. The most heartbreaking thing of all is how we cheat ourselves of the present moment. Sometimes, however, we are cornered. Everything falls apart and we run out of options for escape. At times like that, the most profound spiritual truths seem pretty straightforward and ordinary. There's nowhere to hide. We see it as well as anyone else, better than anyone else. Sooner or later, we understand that although we can't make fear look pretty, it will nevertheless introduce us to all the teachings we've ever heard or read. So the next time you encounter fear, consider yourself lucky. This is where the courage comes in. Usually we think that brave people have no fear, the truth is that they are intimate with fear. When I was first married, my husband said I was one of the bravest people he knew. When I asked him why, he said, because I was a complete coward, but went ahead and did things anyhow. The trick is to keep exploring and not bail out, even when we find out that something is not what we thought. That's what we're going to discover again and again and again. Nothing is what we thought. I can say that with great confidence. Emptiness is not what we thought. Neither is mindfulness or fear. Compassion, not what we thought. Love, Buddha nature, courage. These are code words for things we don't know in our minds, but any of us could experience them. These are words that point to what life really is when we let things fall apart and let ourselves be nailed to the present moment. I think I'm actually going to continue reading on to chapter 2. Um, because I've also got a lot of underlines there. So I hope you enjoyed that first part about becoming intimate with fear. And I'm going to move into chapter two, titled uh, The Same as the Book, When Things Fall Apart. When things fall apart and we're on the verge of we know not what, the test of each of us is to stay on that brink and not concretize. The spiritual journey is not about heaven and finally getting to a place that's really swell. Gampo Abbey is a vast place where the sea and the sky melt into each other. The horizon extends infinitely, and in this vast space float seagulls and ravens. 
The setting is like a huge mirror that exaggerates the sense of there being nowhere to hide. Also, since it's a monastery, there are very few means of escape. No lying, no stealing, no alcohol, no sex, no exit. Gampo Abbey was a place to which I had been longing to go. Trungpa Rinpoche asked me to be the director of the abbey, so finally I found myself there. Being there was an invitation to test my love of a good challenge, because in the first years, it was like being boiled alive. What happened to me when I got to the abbey was that everything fell apart. All the ways I shielded myself, all the ways I deluded myself, all the ways I maintained my well-polished self-image, all of it fell apart. No matter how hard I tried, I could not manipulate the situation. My style was driving everyone else crazy, and I couldn't find anywhere to hide. I had always thought of myself as a flexible, obliging person who was well-liked by almost everyone. I'd been able to carry this illusion throughout most of my life. During my early years at the Abbey, I discovered that I had been living in some kind of misunderstanding. It wasn't that I didn't have those good qualities. It was just that I was not the ultimate golden girl. I had so much invested in that self-image, and it just wasn't holding together anymore. All my unfinished business was exposed vividly and accurately in living technicolor, not only to myself, but to everyone else as well. Everything that I had not been able to see about myself before was suddenly dramatized. As if that weren't enough, others were free with their feedback about me and what I was doing. It was so painful that I wondered if I would ever be happy again. I felt that bombs were being dropped on me almost continuously, with self-deceptions exploding all around. In a place where there was so much practice and study going on, I could not get lost in trying to justify myself and blame others. That kind of exit was not available. A teacher visited during this time, and I remember her saying to me, when you have made good friends with yourself, your situation will be more friendly too. I had learned this lesson before, and I knew that it was the only way to go. I used to have a sign pinned up on my wall that read, Only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found in us. Somehow, even before I heard the Buddhist teachings, I knew that this was the spirit of true awakening. It was all about letting go of everything. Nevertheless, when the bottom falls out and we can't find anything to grasp, it hurts a lot. It's like the Naropa Institute motto, love of the truth puts you on the spot. We might have some romantic view of what that means, but when we are nailed with the truth, we suffer. We look into the bathroom mirror, and there we are, with our pimples, our aging face, our lack of kindness, our aggression and timidity, all that stuff. This is where the tenderness comes in. When things are shaky and nothing is working, we might realize that we are on the verge of something. We might realize that this is a very vulnerable and tender place, and that tenderness can go either way. We can shut down and feel resentful, or we can touch in on that throbbing quality. There's definitely something tender and throbbing about groundlessness. It's a kind of testing, the kind of testing that spiritual warriors need in order to awaken their hearts. Sometimes it's because of illness or death that we find ourselves in this place. We experience a sense of loss, loss of our loved ones, loss of our youth, loss of our life. I have a friend dying of AIDS. Before I was leaving for a trip, we were talking. He said, I didn't want this, and I hated this, and I was terrified of this. 
but it turns out that this illness has been my greatest gift. He said, now every moment is so precious to me. All the people in my life are so precious to me. My whole life means so much to me. Something had really changed and he felt ready for his death. Something that was horrifying and scary had turned into a gift. Things falling apart is a kind of testing and also a kind of healing. We think that the point is to pass the test or to overcome the problem. But the truth is that things don't really get solved. They come together and they fall apart. Then they come together again and fall apart again. It's just like that. The healing comes from letting there be room for all of this to happen. Room for grief, for relief, for misery, for joy. When we think that something is going to bring us pleasure, we don't know what's really going to happen. When we think that something is going to give us misery, we don't know. Letting there be room for not knowing is the most important thing of all. We try to do what we think is going to help, but we don't know. We never know if we're going to fall flat or sit up tall. When there's a big disappointment, we don't know if that's the end of the story. It may just be the beginning of a great adventure. I read somewhere about a family who had only one son. They were very poor. This son was extremely precious to them, and the only thing that mattered to his family was that he bring them some financial support and prestige. Then he was thrown from a horse and crippled. It seemed like the end of their lives. Two weeks after that, the army came into the village and took away all the healthy, strong men to fight the war, and this young man was allowed to stay behind and take care of his family. Life is like that. We don't know anything. We call something bad, we call it good, but really, we just don't know. When things fall apart and we're on the verge of we know not what, the test for each of us is to stay on that brink and not concretize. The spiritual journey is not about heaven and finally getting to a place that's really swell. In fact, that way of looking at things is what keeps us miserable. Thinking that we can find some lasting pleasure and avoid pain is what in Buddhism is called samsara a hopeless cycle that goes round and round endlessly and causes us to suffer greatly. The very first noble truth of the Buddha points out that suffering is inevitable for all human beings as long as we believe that things last, that they don't disintegrate, that they can be counted on to satisfy our hunger for security. From this point of view, the only time we ever really know what's going on is when the rug's been pulled out and we can't find anywhere to land. We use these situations either to wake ourselves up or to put ourselves to sleep. Right now, in the very instance of groundlessness, is the seed of taking care of those who need our care and discovering our goodness. I remember so vividly a day in early spring when my whole reality gave out on me. Although it was before I had heard any Buddhist teachings, it was what some would call a genuine spiritual experience. It happened when my husband told me he was having an affair. We lived in northern New Mexico. I was standing in front of our adobe house, drinking a cup of tea. I heard the car drive up and the door bang shut. Then he walked around the corner, and without warning, he told me that he was having an affair and he wanted a divorce. I remember the sky and how huge it was. I remember the sound of the river and the stream rising up from the sea. Oh, whoops, the steam rising up from my tea. Same, same, but different. There was no time, no thought. There was nothing, just the light and a profound, limitless stillness. Then I regrouped and picked up a stone, and I threw it at him. When anyone asks me how I got involved in Buddhism, I always say it was because I was so angry with my husband. The truth is that he saved my life. 
When the marriage fell apart, I tried hard, very, very hard, to go back to some kind of comfort, some kind of security, some kind of familiar resting place. Fortunately for me, I could never pull it off. Instinctively, I knew that annihilation of my old, dependent, clinging self was the only way to go. That's when I pinned that sign up on my wall. Life is a good teacher and a good friend. There are, things are always in transition, if we could only realize it. Nothing ever sums itself up in the way that we like to dream about. The off-center, in-between state is an ideal situation, a situation in which we don't get caught and we can open our hearts and minds beyond limit. It's a very tender, non-aggressive, open-ended state of affairs. To stay with that shakiness, to stay with a broken heart, with a rumbling stomach, with the feeling of hopelessness and wanting to get revenge, that is the path of true awakening. Sticking with that uncertainty, getting the knack of relaxing in the midst of chaos, learning not to panic, this is the spiritual path. Getting the knack of catching ourselves, of gently and compassionately catching ourselves, is the path of the warrior. We catch ourselves one zillion times as once again, whether we like it or not, we harden into resentment, bitterness, righteous indignation. Harden in any way, even into a sense of release, a sense of inspiration. Every day we could think about the aggression in the world. In New York, Los Angeles, Halifax, Taiwan, Beirut, Kuwait, Somalia, Iraq, everywhere. All over the world, everybody always strikes out at the enemy and the pain escalates forever. Every day we could reflect on this and ask ourselves, am I going to add to the aggression in the world? Every day, at the moment when things get edgy, we can ask ourselves, am I going to practice peace or am I going to war? All right, friends. So what did you think of that? Pretty good, huh? Um, When Things Fall Apart has become one of my favorite books, one that, uh, if you couldn't tell, I just pick up and read here and there um, because it often has really relevant advice for just the everyday, not just like, whoa, when things feel like they're falling apart, like, you know, it doesn't have to be something horrible happening. Sometimes it's just a really bad day or even a really good day. It's comforting advice. Anyway, if you enjoyed this, if you enjoyed hearing um, me read something to you from a book that maybe you wouldn't have picked up otherwise, if you found it useful, um, please share it with someone who you think might also like it, who might enjoy it, or who might find some value in it. I would really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate you so much for listening to this podcast, for sticking around, for exposing yourself to things that might be new to you. I know when I first started reading these things and people started introducing me to them, it was exciting and I was interested and it also felt a little lonely because I didn't know um, a lot of people who uh, would understand where I was coming from with it. And um, part of what I want to do with this is help expose people to it, to things that have helped make my life easier and help me deal with my emotions and the hard parts of life with a little more, um, ease and grace. So yeah, 
if you want to give this a share, I'd really appreciate it. If you really liked it and want to go over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review, that would be super awesome too. And um, until next time, lots of love.